0: A very good afternoon and thank you so much for joining us for this in our series of EA Debates at Euroactive. You can follow along using that hashtag on Twitter and on social media. Today we're going to be talking about the future of work. This is one in a series of events where we're going to tackle this topic and we're going to talk about the challenges in a fast changing world. Even before the COVID pandemic, things were changing. We see a change in demographics, we see a shift to digitalization, but of course, the last year and a half have exacerbated the various pluses and minuses. I have a great panel here today to discuss that with me. So let me introduce them to you. We have Katrina Leitane, who is from the EESC as president of the SG, Decent Work for Young People and the Inclusion of NEET through the National Recovery Plans. From the European Parliament, member of the ITREC Committee, we have Ava Kiley, MEP, we have Scott Marcus, Senior Fellow at Bruegel, Michael Freytag is the Europe Public Affairs Manager at the World Employment Confederation, and last but by no means least, Mark Judd is Vice President HCM Product Strategy in European, Middle East and Africa Department for Workday. Thank you very much ladies and gentlemen for joining me today. It is a changing world it is a globally changing world but we're going to try and focus on what the issues are particularly in the eu today so katrina let me start with you set out your stall tell us what you're working on and why it's important
1: okay so first of all good afternoon everybody uh, and let me thank you for inviting me to this conference. It's really my pleasure to be here today. So I'm a member of the European Economic and Social Committee, working on the opinion on need uh, youngsters uh, which, who are not in education and not in unemployment. And my background is youth sector, so my contributions today will be more from this perspective.
0: Um, Scott, let me jump straight to you. Um, Tell us a bit about uh, what you're following, what you think is of interest at the moment. I'm afraid, I think you're on mute.
2: Oh dear, Uh, The sorry, (laughs) I'm on mute is something that we all know very well after this uh, year of (laughs) COVID. Good, so I think what you said was exactly right though. What we're seeing today is an intensification of a lot of trends that were already visible for a long time. Uh, the tendency toward flexibility of work, flexibility of work hours, flexibility of the mode of employment, that's something that's already visible in the literature going back to the 1980s. The shift toward self-employment, a shift toward gig work, including things like Uber drivers, uh, that was already visible before the pandemic. It's, uh, it's changed a bit, but it's there. Uh, one thing that's been particularly noteworthy, though, is the shift to remote work. Now, remote work was always there, uh, but it was growing relatively slowly. And, again, some professions are much more suitable for it than others. Um, there were people like farmers and people who work in fisheries, miners. Um, they were not working in an office ever, um, and bus drivers too, um, but uh, they also didn't have the opportunity to choose where they work. Knowledge workers could, and what we saw was a slow growth mainly in people in the higher quantiles of income, mainly for people uh, with higher skill levels. What we've seen is an absolute explosion in the amount of remote work that was done. It was always possible companies resisted it. Now that they had to do it, they find that they can do it. And that's the change. And the ability to use collaboration tools, as we're doing right at this moment, um, that's enabled a lot of things that would have been more difficult in the past. What we've also seen from COVID is shifts in employment patterns. Uh, The impact has been greater on hours worked than it has on the number of people employed largely due to programs like the German Kurzarbeitergeld, short-term payments to keep people employed, nominally employed even at a lower rate, which were tested in 2008-2009, proved themselves, were quickly redeployed here, have been very positive. But the impact on hours worked has been very different in different sectors. Uh, If you look at restaurants, if you look at hotels, if you look at air transport, clearly enormous impacts. If you look at manufacturing and some other fields, uh, not so much. Uh, Things are working in some of those sectors almost normally. I think the biggest question is will things go back to where they were? And for that, uh, I'd like to quote uh, one of the old Zen Buddhist scholars. Uh, He said, before you begin to study Zen Buddhism, rivers are rivers and mountains are mountains. Once you begin to study Zen Buddhism, rivers are no longer rivers and mountains are no longer mountains but after mastering Zen Buddhism, after achieving enlightenment, then once again, rivers are rivers and mountains are mountains. So what I think we're already perceiving is a return to some form of normalcy, but it'll be different than the normalcy that we left. And with that, back to you.
0: Thank you, Scott. That's a a, a philosophical way to start us off. Uh, Michael, give me your thoughts, your your opening comments on uh, framing this discussion, because we will get into the nitty gritty.
3: Yeah, thank you very much for inviting us. The World of Europe is the voice of the employment industry, so our members do temporary actions work, career management and other HR services. We have 30 federations Europe and 50 worldwide. What we have seen is an increasing diversity of forms of work, uh, impact of digitalisation was mentioned, um, platform work, uh, but also new skills needs um, and needs to reform social protection schemes across Europe and in the member states. What we see as a key solution to drive these changes is social innovation, meaning developing new solutions for working, learning and social protection, and our industry is actually at the heart of doing so. Um, COVID-19 of the last uh, year and a half has certainly accelerated and and strengthened these trends, but it has not really changed or shifted the world of work fundamentally. Remote working has been there before, it's been now the norm for many people, but what we have been seeing in the last couple of months and in the last year is the need to foster resilience and reforms. That's why we came up with a manifesto just a week ago, uh, which focuses on with ref- recovery, reform, and resilience. And there, a strong need on, of course, fostering recovery, but also managing risks that are much more prominent nowadays than they were in the past. Uh, for the recovery, we need labor market reforms. Uh, promoting diverse forms of work, and we also need to reform the protection schemes in Europe. With that, I would give the floor back to you and continue the discussion later.
0: Thank you, Michael. Mark, um, let me ask you, explain a little bit about Workday as well, so so people know what, where you're coming from uh, and, and why you're involved in this debate.
4: Of course. Thank you, Jennifer, and thank you very much for the invitation to join the panel today. So for those that don't know Workday, Workday is a leading provider of cloud-based applications, particularly in the finance and human capital management space. Uh, We've got over three and a half thousand customers worldwide on Workday finance and uh, HR uh, solutions. Uh, 600 of those are headquartered in Europe. But of course, many of the other customers have uh, people based here in in Europe. Um, If I move a little bit onto this debate uh, around skills, uh, Workday uh, engages with many of those customers on uh, managing the uh, the resources associated in the life cycle of human capital management. Everything from sourcing uh, capability to workforce planning uh, into the whole process of development, uh, learning, uh, and compensation management, etc. And it's become very apparent to to us, uh, and I, I'd endorse everything that uh, uh, that Scott and Michael have said around the uh, increase in activity that's happened uh, around the catalysing of the COVID environment, but it has. Uh, really advanced uh, an agenda that existed before around digitalization uh, and very much from our perspective around a real focus on the use of skills as a new currency in helping to drive business success and define business requirements. Uh, And so we've been focused uh, significantly on building skills into the flow of work around all aspects of human capital management uh, with our customers and working with our customers on that. I think what's become very apparent in in that is that it's a multifaceted debate Uh, and and also uh, we've seen now the use of skills going into areas that we'd originally conceived of it being really from a perspective of uh, driving capability into the organisation and delivering on business success but it's become a major feature of a debate around uh, aspects such as uh, creating the right sense of belonging. Uh, the broader diversity debate and how you can use skills objectively to help shape culture of the organization uh, and uh, create the right uh, scenario for organizations in order to sustain themselves in climates uh, such as the we've all faced in the last 18 months.
0: Well, thank you, Mark. I, we are going to talk about the workforce as an asset, I'm, I'm sure. Um, but let me come back, uh, Katrina, to you. Um, Mark there mentioned skills as, as one of his, uh, as one of the elements that, that we're looking at. Tell me a bit more about what you're working on with regard to skills for, for, for these uh, needs, if we call them that.
1: Yeah, uh, thank you very much uh, for coming back to me. Yes, I want to particularly emphasise the situation of young people. So pandemic has hit young people particularly hard and has affected their fundamental parts of their lives like education, social life and work. Even before the COVID-19 youth aged 15 to 24 were indeed already three times more likely to be unemployed compared to adults, while 126 million young workers were in extreme and moderate poverty worldwide. There were about 30 million young people aged 20 to 34 who were neither in employment nor in education and training in 2019 in the eu the covid 19 crisis has been done 10 years of progress of jobs for young people behind these numbers are the leaders of tomorrow doctors teachers policy makers scientists and farmers who we want to shape the future of the eu so if we want young people to be europe's future to drive our green and digital recovery so it's absolutely crucial to make sure we have resources to do so when a flower doesn't bloom, you fix the environments in which it grows, not the flower. So I will talk today about more about young people's situation.
0: Thank you very much. I'm going to come back, Scott. Um I want to reflect a little bit on the digitalization process, because this is a big push of the EU uh, along, alongside sustainability in these national recovery plans. There's all this money that's being given to countries to help them dig themselves out of, of, the, of the crisis we're currently in, in regards to the pandemic. How is that going to affect the way in which people work, because there's always been those with careers and those with jobs, if we want to put it very bluntly, in in, in very, very stark terms. How is digitalization going to change that, or is it?
2: Both a a positive and a negative face, like the the Roman god Janus. I guess I'm into metaphors today. But um, I know a few years ago, some uh, Oxford University scholars uh, really kicked up a fuss when they argued that 47% of American workers uh, in, in the United States, this is now, were at risk of being unemployed due to artificial intelligence, big data, all of those technologies, robotization, within a small number of decades. What we see today is a little different. Almost everybody that's analyzed this finds that the impact, if at all negative, will be small. In fact, it might be positive. Partly because what's eliminated or changed is individual tasks, not whole jobs. Um, the, the impact is very different. And also because technology creates at least as many opportunities as it eliminates. I mean, if you look uh, you know, in, in most of the world, 200 years ago, everybody was farmers. The fraction of the population that's farmers today is tiny. And yet that doesn't mean that our societal welfare has declined. So again, this, this digitalization is going to have an enormous impact. Now, you referred implicitly, I think, to the uh, in next generation EU, specifically to the Recovering Resilience Fund, which indeed, it's pretty close to 750 million 2018 euro. It's a big sum. Out of that, 20% is supposed to be sent for, spent for digitalization, not just increasing digitalization, but also dealing with consequences of digitalization. Uh, another substantial chunk, 37 38%, is going to uh, sustainability, to green things. So, this has the potential to be transformative. A lot of things that were needed for a long time, a lot of things that were on the the shopping list for years, suddenly have some money behind them. Um, A few, oh, maybe six months ago, um, the uh, German uh, finance minister Olaf Scholz was speaking at one of our events, and he said, if we simply build things back the way that they were, we will have done a disservice to future generations, and that very much, I think, comes back to what Katrina was saying. Uh, We need to build back differently, we need to build back better. And a key piece of that certainly is digitalization. Another key piece, and and, um, uh, again, one of the other speakers touched on this, is is education. Where we've had rather brittle education systems in Europe historically, uh, we need to put much more focus on lifelong learning. Uh, Katrina was absolutely right to say youth unemployment is far higher than unemployment in general. Uh, One Eurofound study found something like 17% of people who had been employed before the pandemic, of of young people who had been employed before the pandemic, are now unemployed compared to 10 percent over the general population so it's they've taken an especially big hit but essentially training and retraining is going to be necessary for everybody Uh, coming back to these results that i mentioned at the outset how will artificial intelligence change things well again it won't on balance probably eliminate jobs on balance quite likely it will increase them but all jobs will change nearly every job will change hugely And this implies that people have to keep re-educating themselves and have to keep being re-educated by social tools. Uh,
0: Well, you said build back better. Um, At at a recent event I was with Commissioner Maria Gabriel, she says build forward better, which I quite like as a a, a way of saying we don't want to go back to the same old, same old. We want to actually, if we can, use the crisis to, to try and find a silver lining. And Michael, I think you have something to add on this.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to get back to the building back back better because I think that is actually not the right approach. I do think we need to innovate, we need to reform, we need to adapt, and we need to do better. So it's not building back, it's innovation, it is new ways of working, and it's serving companies, workers, and society at large. I mean, too often in the past, we have been looking at benefits of certain groups of society, like workers, like the companies, like societies at large, but we really need to look at at innovation that drives benefits for all.
0: Thank you. Mark, um, let me come to you. I mean, I I alluded to it at the beginning. There was, uh, you know, in the past, there was a fear that, you know, robots are going to take our jobs. I don't think that's necessarily the fear now. But tell me a little bit about people's reluctance and how do you explain uh, to the public about why digitalization is good for all jobs and not just those in, say, the knowledge economy?
4: It's a great question. Just a little bit of background on me, uh, Jennifer. I've, I've come out of industry, so uh, prior to joining Workday, I, I spent 11 years with Rolls-Royce Aerospace. Uh, and in my career, I've worked for auto Car Manufacturing. So you know, I've I've seen uh, the evolution of uh, applied robotics and and uh, advanced technology uh, in in the world of industry. And now in this current role, I see it applied elsewhere and i get the fear i mean i understand that the concern uh, but I, I agree with what scott said that um actually there's more opportunity to offer um but it is a balance to get right uh, to make sure that we don't take the humanity out of uh, our working life by um over uh, digitizing it in in one respect but using dig- digital capability in a responsible way to to create more opportunities and, and I think with some illustrations of how we're using that, um, both in uh, in, the, in uh, direct in manufacturing or in uh, in public sector, whether it be in uh, the financial sector, etc., where we can use it to uh, to create insights, to augment uh, experiences, to improve the quality of services, uh, to improve the standard and uh, telemetry that's used to manufacture products. Yeah, you know, we can see many examples where that digital capability is is really enhancing our whole quality of life, not only in the the outcomes that we get from the products, but in the way that we're actually operating. And today's a very good example as we're collaborating using uh, new technologies in order to speak. And I'm sure this is only the the dawn of collaboration uh, communication, but it is um, a double-edged sword and we need to be very responsible in the application of of digital and also respectful um, for people's concerns and issues surrounding it. Uh, to make sure that we use it responsibly and not irresponsibly and perpetuate a concern and that that's key and companies like us uh, at Workday we have to be very mindful of that agenda when we work with our customers to to look at the the use of employee data for example and make sure that we're using things in a way that uh, that really supports and promotes uh, the right underlying ethos And, and that's why we do things like for example um look at algorithms that, that, that really assist and support uh, uh more objective selection in recruitment or why we're using uh, some of our uh, our new employee sentiment capability to to help employees engage in a safe and secure way and uh and and uh really surface some some underlying uh perspectives from employees that otherwise would remain hidden So my view is that it's just can't be easily binary. We can't really see it uh, in one respect or another as good or bad. It's like any uh, tool, sophisticated as it is, it's good when you use it in the right way.
0: You're almost citing Kranzberg's first law there. Technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. (laughs) But what I want to tease out a little bit there is The difference, if you like, between technology in terms of, as you you mentioned, robotics, innovative technologies and advances in doing things, and data, because I think we often conflate digitalization with just simply the access to more data. And of course, the bigger the data, the more it is, you know, analyzed and the, and the more that we, we manage to, to create, if you like, these new systems for analyzing the data, that will trickle down into pretty much all sorts of jobs. I mean, uh, Scott mentioned farmers, but, you know, they are also using data to enable their work to, to be done better. So it's not all about simply those who are in the office. So, um, Mark, um, and then I want to come on to Michael, I would like to hear your thoughts on where do you think the next frontier of data is in terms of work?
4: So I think there's, you know, it, it is a, an entire ecosystem of data management to many respects. So first of all, you have to get the processes working in a, an effective way in order to, to yield the data. And um, certainly in industry and, 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 and in other sectors as well, the challenge has been that we've been driving Uh, that data source from multiple technologies and yielding a a very clean and clear oversight has been uh, highly problematic. So I think we've seen a a very significant shift with products like Workday, where we've moved things to a more cohesive and integrated solution that's starting to actually surface and yield data. And that's, that's the first step of evolution. That's by no means the end of it. But as we move forward, it's about utilizing that information in a number of ways. First of all, truly understanding it, uh, and surfacing relevant data because you know a, a forest of data means that you don't see the trees, you can't get to the salient points, you can't act uh, effectively. So having artificial intelligence to augment using algorithms to surface relevant statistical information that assists businesses in taking action, whether it be around employee sentiment, belonging diversity, or performance information, or uh, manufacturing data, that's the second kind of step. And then I think as we move forward, we think it's about making predictive capability. So looking at information, benchmarking the data against uh, expected and understood outcomes, and then using that to recommend and suggest uh, ideas, um, innovations, interventions, etc., that can drive success. And if I think about our employee sentiment solution, one of the things that uh, that we we have the ability to do now using a, a very large array of information is to suggest to companies that if they take certain actions and invest in certain ways, whether it be time, whether it be in uh, compensation, whether it be in education, they can expect to see these kind of positive outcomes from an employee sentiment perspective. And that, again, is using artificial intelligence in order to assist human cognitive powers in, in driving that. And that predictive capability, making those assessments as to what is likely to happen from actions that derive from the data is really the nirvana. That's where we we are. You know, it's we're at the very earliest dawns of that from a in people management perspective. And that is the direction that many organisations will truly benefit from. And I think that's probably our, you know, our, our, our north star for the future.
0: Thank you, um, Scott. I think you had something to add uh, regarding this in terms of data, but public sector data.
2: Indeed I did. Thank you. Um, Well, uh, I was actually taking a number of points. Many people think of Europe as being rather hostile to the use of data, especially when we think of uh, personal data and the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR. There's actually multiple threads in European policy. There's also been a very conscious effort to open up data as much as possible, especially non-personal data and especially public sector data. There have been a couple of efforts from the European. lawmakers, uh, the the institutions already, to require public institutions to make their data public, to provide real-time application programming interfaces to enable access to the data. So generally to broaden things, and uh, currently we've got a new law proposed uh, as of December that would be a Data Governance Act that seeks to further broaden that to increase access to data that doesn't raise privacy concerns or to try to deal with public data to the extent that it doesn't raise privacy concerns. Um, so again, there's really a big thrust on this. There's also, however, one particular risk that I wanted to touch on, which has to do with cross-border movement of data. Many of you will have heard of uh, two important decisions of the uh, Court of Justice of the European Union, SHREMS One and SHREMS II, that have the effect of limiting, or potentially limiting, cross-border transfers uh, initially to the United States, but potentially also to the United Kingdom. The UK effectively has an adequacy decision as of a couple of days ago, whether it would stand up to a a serious court challenge, I I think is is dubious. And um, essentially these cross-border transfers are important in terms of welfare. Uh, Often we think of them as benefiting mainly US companies, and there's certainly a lot of truth to that, but Europeans benefit from the services that those companies provide. So we're going to need, I think, better solutions than the current laws give us in terms of how to, on the one hand, provide excellent protection to consumer privacy and yet on the other hand, enable the transfers that are actually needed in their own way to benefit consumers also to happen. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Scott. I could go down a rabbit hole and talk about data protection all day, but we're going to come, I'm going to move on to a slightly different angle when we're talking about the future of work and what I would like to examine is a little bit where it dovetails with the future of education. And, Katrina, I think this is something you're working on um, in terms of, if you like, lifelong learning or or third-degree learning. So, tell me a bit more about where you see education fitting into the economy of work.
1: Thank you. Uh, First of all, I want to mention two numbers which I think are really important to go further with this discussion, is by 2030, up to 20 million jobs could be created worldwide due to the green transition of industries. And about 14% of jobs would change due to digitalization. So these are huge numbers. And uh, what I want to say is that today at the plenary session of the committee, we adopted opinion on adult learning where great emphasis on lifelong learning has been established and several really important recommendations uh, provided. So if you can, please um, read this opinion and... um, introduce yourself with these recommendations in relation to young people of course it's absolutely crucial to have uh, educational programs and initiatives training initiatives so these new skills uh, young people can acquire they are more able to adapt to the change we are experiencing and
0: facing day-to-day life katrina thank you for raising those michael your perspective please on skills um as as obviously it's formation of, of, of education is to deliver those skills.
3: Yeah, thank you very much. First of all, look in our industry at our members, most of the people working via temporary actions work, via employment services, are young people. Those are 20, 25. They are having their first job in the real economy and often they are still in the process of learning. So that's why in, in many countries, we have set up bipolar training funds that help people to acquire skills Often beyond the formal education, soft skills, uh, uh, training on how to write a CV, how to do an interview, all these kind of things that people that are young need to learn and need to improve on. And uh, we also see a lot of activities on learning on the job. Skills development is by no means nowadays going to university, going to studies uh, for three to four years and then having the skills for life. No. Skills means lifelong learning. Uh, it is a currency in the world of work, and we need to make sure that these currencies are still holding the value they need and holding the uh, the added value that people are needing. What is important there is a commitment of um, companies, certainly our members do so by different means, but also of cooperation with public authorities, providing support, support and also the EU level can an important role there on the skills agenda and providing access to finance especially linked to COVID-19, I think it's also important to know that many people have changed jobs, have moved to new sectors, and there again, training in skills and enhancement was very key, as also highlighted in a joint segment of our social partners, in Europa and WC Europe, in the recent part.
0: Thank you, Michael. Well, Mark, you're working very closely with industry. and Michael, there mentioned sort of lifelong learning skills. Do you think industry appreciates or, or is uh, is changing its opinion on the value of workers as an asset and the workers' education and skills level in particular as an asset?
4: Yeah, very much so. and I, th- I think this uh, I think it was a a theme before Covid, but uh, as you can appreciate, every organisation has had to adapt in a significant way to the challenges, sometimes to surge in order to accommodate uh, massive growth, other oh, yeah. times to adapt. Um, you know, we have customers in the pharmaceutical business that have been in the heart of uh, helping to address the issues. We have customers that have in the business that have been significantly damaged by the consequences of this. So, you know, in order Mark, to just manage... Kind of come
0: back on skills, Which is what I've just come to on, yeah. Sorry. uh, Sorry, Jennifer. Sorry, I'm just noticing what uh, what we're getting comments in from uh, from our audience members. But please continue your point, and then we'll get on to what the audience is is asking.
4: Yes. So, 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 um, from the uh, perspective of businesses, they've long recognised the importance of understanding and managing uh, skills, but also because they need to sustain loyal employees that have got long term service with the organizations, without losing uh, the the value those employees have to the the business, because they've got the right values, they've got the right relationship with the company, um, and therefore looking at skills in a more agile way. And and to do that, and understanding how the skills can relate to one another, um, how collections and categories of skills can be utilized, and how skills can be adapted from one capability to another, so that individuals uh, can have a more um, dynamic career in in their business and move uh, in you know it, with rapidity in order to uh, to deliver new services or to help move into say for example uh, a new types of products. If 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 automotive businesses are moving into the electrical world, for example, you know they don't want to necessarily have to go out and recruit an entirely new uh, workforce in order to to branch out into the digital sorry the uh, uh, the electrical car uh, manufacturer or electrical uh, engine manufacturer so skills it's not just binary do you have them or don't you but how easy is it to change skills uh, in your employee population so that you can maintain your people and use skills as the mechanism of change not changing your indiv- you know your individual employees when your business strategy needs to adapt
0: thank you for that um, let me remind the audience you can of course send questions to our panelists use the ask function and and say which panelists you would like to ask that question to and i will try and get some of those questions to them i see there's a little bit of action going on in the chat but uh, do use the the, the, the ask for specific questions to the panelists. I should also say we uh, we were expecting to have Ava Kiley, but there's a few technical hitches. So we will maybe get her before the end where she can give us some sort of wrap up. But at the moment, unfortunately, she's not available to connect. Scott, let me come to you. I know you have a a lot of thoughts on, on, on the points that Mark was just making. And you're on mute the catchphrase of the last two years, you're on
2: mute. Indeed. Sorry, sorry. I'm calling from a lounge in a train station, and so I'm muting when I'm not speaking. Um, So some of us have to be a little flexible to do these things. Good. Uh, No, I I wanted to, first off, uh, very much endorse the comments that uh, Mark was making, but also add something. What the statistics tell us is that in terms of lifelong learning, um, most of the lifelong learning is going to people who already have high skills. And in fact, a lot of the literature tells us that uh, companies tend to put a lot of their benefits towards those who have firm specific skills anyway. So, but there's a risk actually that this effectively increases polarization within the workforce and that it uh, further disadvantages those who already have lower skills who may be the ones that are most at risk of being thrown out of work. Uh, So this I think is something that we have to look at and essentially how do we make training available to a wider slice of the workforce, not simply to those that the companies are most intent on, tr- on retaining. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Well, Katrina, I think perhaps you will probably have an interesting take on that because um, obviously you're focused on young people. But but do you see any reflections of what Scott is saying there that lifelong learning tends to favour those who are already skilled?
1: Um. I'm, I'm using Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Okay, okay. Uh, yes, I, I agree absolutely what was, uh, Scott just said. And uh, I want to mention two um, studies actually um, done by a European Youth Forum. And there were really great recommendations and solutions for youth inclusive future of work. And there I can see that investment in young people skills are one of the most important uh, things we have to develop and work on, as well as reform welfare systems and labour legislation is really crucial uh, as well to improve situation for young people. And as well, safeguarding workers' rights and well-being, creating a youth-friendly labour market and investing in new uh, economy as well. So these would be these uh, recommendations and, and then our policies we could work to improve uh, situation of young people in labour markets in the future.
0: Thank you. Well, you mentioned labor legislation there. Um, and I'm kind of interested to see what the big uh, next steps are. And so I want to talk a bit now about the so-called gig economy, because this is one of the areas where we see policymakers, uh, elected representatives, uh, Getting excited about what what needs to be done because it is such a new way of working. Michael, what are your thoughts on this on the gig economy? Is it truly disruptive? Is it providing a lifeline? Is it actually providing people with poorer quality work?
3: Let me first start with challenging you because gig economy is the word nowadays in Brussels, and you also hear a platform worker economy. And the first thing I would like to say is. This doesn't exist because platform work is a way of organizing work, of organizing a service, but it's not a new form of work. Within gig work, you have self-employment. You also have platform work who offer actually direct employment based on a worker relationship. You also have platforms that actually do the same as temporary work agencies. So they assi- they hire workers to assign them to certain tasks. So, in a sense, platform work is a very heterogeneous concept, as gig work is, and for us, the key element is to ensure social protection for all, uh, which means, again, getting back to social innovation, new ways of social protection that need to be developed. The Commission is currently consulting social partners, and we are contributing there to uh, working conditions for platform workers, for gig workers, and what we see as the biggest challenge, the biggest risk, is that the focus will be on the food delivery drivers, the taxi drivers, uh, while many other platforms that offer also service via a platform, but being completely different, are being treated by the same regulation, treated by the same rules that are established at the European level, and we also feel there's much more room for self-regulation than for coming up with one solution that, that matches and, and aims to match all different forms of platform work.
0: Scott, Michael says the gig economy doesn't exist. (laughs) Does it or does it not in your view?
2: Well, I would say it exists. But in fact, my views are quite close to what Michael's views are. Um, I would say there's been a great deal of fuss about gig workers, especially are they really self-employed contractors? Are they employees? Very much in line with what Michael said. uh, I think it shouldn't matter. You know, basically the self-employed have been around for a long time. Self-employed, let's say self-employed who don't have their own employees, they also have social protection needs. And those are generally not very well accommodated uh, within the social protection schemes of the various EU member states. So essentially, if there were better social protection for self-employed persons who need it, and also for non-traditional employees, people who maybe have an employer but not a traditional full-time job, if there were better protection for those then most of these issues would really go away or, or it certainly would become much less prominent so that's what i see as the real message now the eu actually has been sensitive to this there was an eu pillar of social rights uh there was a council resolution on recommendation trying to deal with non-traditional employees and the self-employed but it doesn't do much yet and the fundamental reason is that these social protection systems are normally primarily at member state level, the European institutions can do some coordination, um, especially by the way in terms of portability of rights. Let's say you've done some work in one member state, some work in another, trying to make sure that the benefits are somehow portable. What we need today also is portability across different modes of work. If you're an Uber driver part of the day and a taxi driver employee for part of the day, how do you top those up together when it comes to your pension? So these are the kind of reforms that are really needed. And to me, they're more fundamentally tied to issues of self-employment than they are specifically to gig employment. So in that sense, I'm largely on the same page as Michael. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Scott. Mark, I would like to get your perspective on this, Um, as I say, just as a shorthand for calling it the gig economy. But in reality, it's this, this ways of platform organization of work is adding flexibility for employers. Is that also what you see in terms of employees feeling that this is how they want to work?
4: I think that there's a full spectrum to this and you know clearly many employees will be uh, entering this form of market through necessity uh, in order to 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 seek employment Um, and you know the traditional forms of employment that many organizations offer are still there but we're seeing a much wider spectrum. And there's no doubt um, that and I agree wholeheartedly with what Scott and uh, Michael said that the right protections need to be in place in order to ensure that um, proper and responsible uh, uh, employment practices take place irrespective of the nature of the employee, whether they be uh, full time employees, um, temporary employees on uh, on agency type contracts or or self-employed. But I would like to add one thing, which it doesn't quite answer your question, uh, Jennifer, if I could, because I think Michael and Scott have really, uh, to some extent, answered some of those things that the right protections need to be in place. Um, and But there is definitely a, a new type of employee. Now, that doesn't compensate for those that feel the necessity to, to work in this market that may not be um, getting the best out of that. But there is definitely an employee that wants more flexibility as well. So I'd see that as you know another facet in this conversation, um, where employees are actually looking to be more um, agile uh, in employment, where they actually operate on a more kind of crowdsourced basis. And we see many organisations and um, industries, businesses now um, springing up where um, uh, where individuals with the right skills. Um, Uh, want to enter the market on a more flexible basis and contract uh, on on the unit activity of work, uh, sometimes at quite high premiums, to be brought in for certain R&D work, uh, to be brought in for sort of special and and highly skilled areas. We see that. I'm not necessarily saying that's uh, qualitatively good or bad, but we definitely see that being an aspiration for many businesses to tap into that kind of market. Um, I do think that it comes back uh, to Katrina's point earlier on, as well, that that then needs to be fed properly with uh, with the with the way of um, uh, uh, creating the right education opportunities for for young people to enter that market, uh, and that is a real challenge because in the past that's been the auspices of apprentice programs and education programs offered by mainstream employers. So it's there, um, but there's there's still a way for it to evolve and to go, uh, and I think you know we, there is quite a a, a, a great deal more of uh, thought that needs to go into how we sort of replenish and encourage that if that's going to be a a growing market. And we definitely see a lot more um, people going into that way of working.
0: Michael, I think you uh, wanted to add to this question about protections. And you're on mute. We've got you. We've got you. It's good. Thank you.
3: (laughs) Yeah. No, one, one element on, on protection that I would like to highlight is don't rely only on the state. What I'm seeing in our sector of temporary creations work is that social partners have put in place solutions for social protection via private funds to, you know, provide extra benefits to workers, to provide a pension, to provide some sick benefits. So in that sense, social protection can take different forms. And of course, for gig workers, social partners don't exist in most countries. But then again, it can be a task for companies to think creatively, to think out of the box, develop solutions with insurance companies to make sure that we create new safety nets for workers who are working only on a limited amount of time. And then again, I would like to refer back to our sector, temporary work. Some 20 to 30 years ago, there was a whole discussion about our sector being not stable enough, not secure enough. That has changed nowadays, and what we now see as a new you know, point of discussion. We can learn from the, se- the experience in the tapio sector and build on this experience for the future.
0: Well, thank you, Katrina. Not building back
3: better, but building, <laughs> building for the future.
0: Building forward, not building back. Building <laughs> Katrina, let me come to you and ask you about the sort of policy recommendations that you would like to see in place, you know, from, from the perspective of youth and, and youth organisations.
1: I'm not going to go in details uh, for all the recommendations, but A lot of them can be found in these study papers uh, produced by European Youth Forum, but there are three I want to mention and emphasize uh, to reach out and support all young people. There are three uh, recommendations I want to mention today is heed the lessons from the aftermath of the 2008 economic crisis to make sure that policy responses tackle long-term negative effects. And these long-term negative effects, uh, I want to mention educational loss, economic loss, and poor mental health. Now as taken as a pandemic scar on young people. Uh, Second recommendation would be to ensure meaningful participation of young people and youth organizations in designing and implementing an evaluation of policies and programs at all levels. And at last, develop policy responses with a strong intersectional dimension to ensure that they adequately address the situation of different groups of youth, especially the most vulnerable and marginalized.
0: Well, thank you, Katrina. You have raised, of course, the elephant in the room is the COVID pandemic. And it it seems every debate on whatever topic we are discussing does come around to trying to address this because it is a generational seismic shift that has impacted people from whatever walk of life they're in. Scott, I want to ask you, what do you see this doing to the future of work? Because that is the topic of our debate today is the future of work. We've seen what it's done in terms of remote working, in terms of shifts and changes. But what of the changes we've seen do you think will be lasting? Uh, do you see any silver lining? Or indeed, do you see residual pain coming from, from the from the economic crisis that will, will fall out from this pandemic?
2: Well, first and foremost, uh, I think at the end of the day, rivers will once again be rivers and mountains will once again be mountains, coming back to my first comment. Um, I think that things will be returning to some form of normalcy, but it will be different. Now, I've mentioned before there are good survey results. Eurofound did some very extensive survey work in April and July of last year, and most recently now in February March this year. Uh, What they find is that about 50% of the workforce um, really wants to continue to be able to work from home, uh, perhaps several times a week, perhaps several times a month. But there's a real desire to do this. Uh, The desire was probably always there but is stronger now because people have more experience with it. Uh, Resistance from the firms was strong in the past. I don't think it can be manifested at the same level going forward because at this point they've seen that some level of remote work is possible. So I think that we're going to see much more of hybrid environments coming into play than we did before, where people spend some time in the office, but not all of their time in the office. There will be people who work entirely from home. That's also visible in the survey results. Uh, it's something that became more prominent with the pandemic. Um, and it's uh, it's sustainable going forward. Now, other impacts, though. Some sectors are impacted. Some of them will spring back to previous levels. Others won't. Um, you have sectors like entertainment. I suspect that that'll end up looking pretty close to where it was before the pandemic. Um, You have others like air travel. Uh, I don't think we're going to see the level of business air travel going forward that we historically saw. I could be wrong on that. So I think we're going to see see distinct sectoral impacts, uh, and I think some of them are going to be persistent. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you. Mark, I mean, you you obviously have have a close view on this, I'm sure. What trends do you see that you think may be enduring and which ones do you feel won't be?
4: Well, I, you know, it's very interesting listening to Scott's perspective because I, I I could recognise a lot of uh, the the descriptions um, he's, he's he's just given based on the conversations we're having directly with businesses in those sectors right now, and they're adapting uh, significantly to to address that and, and and modifying their business models to do it. Um, I think I would agree with with, with everything that that we we've, we've just said around the the nature of the change of the workplace. Uh, And that kind of opens up a a new form of conversation as to what is the workplace and what is the, we've already had the conversation previously, what is the worker for the future? Now we're talking about what is the workplace for the future, both of which of course are are inextricably linked. Um, So I think there will be a a shift in um, expectations as to what those two things are. Um, In in addition to perhaps uh, other social factors like um, the a refocus, and almost every customer we spoke speak to right now has got a massive refocus on the um, on diversity, on the concept of belonging, on employee welfare, on um, uh, mental health, uh, and, and Katrina referred to that earlier on. I think that's you know we're not in the right place at the moment, but it's moving in the right direction as businesses take on the accountability for that kind of thing. So the social contract between business and employee, I think, is changing. But the other thing which may be a more kind of silver lining to the um the outcomes of this is the concept of teams is changing a lot i think teams were very much a proximity based concept in the past um and now i think the idea of the collaboration tools that uh, michael mentioned earlier that are now coming into play i think will change the way in which people are looking to collaborate uh, and my expectation is that what we're seeing in terms of things like zoom teams um and other forms of uh, collaboration tools are going to continue to innovate quite significantly um, so that, you know, we'll get a better blend of what takes place in a a physical workspace, uh, and that will change as well as people look at more collaborative environments in the workspace as opposed to perhaps box-like offices or or open plan uh, cubicles. And also, I think, international working with effective tools to work on uh, technical projects or problem-solving issues could start to see, seem quite different in the future with, with that merger between new types of employees, new types of workspaces, new types of technology, just recreating that holistic environment of which the home will now pay uh, an important part in the way that it didn't before. For better or worse, uh, and it will be worse for some and better for others, the workplace and the, and the home space are pretty much now synonymous for, for many people.
0: Absolutely, and we're all, of course, working from different places. And we are also very familiar with the gremlins and the technological hitches that somehow prevent us because we do have Ava Kylie, the MEP. She has been trying to connect. And Ava, it's Jennifer here. I hope you can hear me, but I think we've got you on the line. And I thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking about the future Great, it's lovely to speak to you. <laughs> no, Paul, po- it's lovely to hear you, even if we can't see you. We've been talking about the future of work, the pressures put on us by the COVID pandemic, remote working, the gig economy, and what we think will change in the digital revolution. Tell me a bit about what you're working on as a policymaker in this area.
5: Yes, so uh, I'm sorry that I haven't heard much of what you have discussed. So I, I hope I will not like repeat points that you've already made. Uh, but of course, I, I believe we all uh, realize uh, how this pandemic has accelerated um, the use of new tools in the future of work, and we have also realized not only that um, we will change the way we used to uh, understand what uh, you know work means, and in terms of several different factors, proximity as it was just mentioned, but um also quality of work and if you need to have a more flexible schedule but at the same time to protect what we have achieved to protect the rights of workers um, offline to translate it online. Um, the same time besides the nature of everything that is changing in this uh, teleworking environment, we also see that we have new jobs being created, new future jobs. Um, so in uh, in europe we have been uh, trying to understand all the changes in all the aspects and levels uh, that occurs for example we have already um, an ongoing file on the platform of workers and how we can achieve the maximum um, uh, protection of, of their um, the, the new uh, platform uh, understanding of work and how they can manage to let's say not have just a, um, a main salary but also to be able to complement their salary with extra uh, part-time jobs and make, giving them opportunities that they didn't have before but without this leading into any kind of exploitation because it could actually leave grey zones and also we discuss even about the new rights that we should have not just to translate but also to understand that these new forms they require also a new uh, way of thinking um, I remember 2018 I, um, I was calling for um, the right to switch off. Um, uh, now we have already introduced and called the, the Commission to come up with uh, a legislation for the right to disconnect. Uh, coming from Greece I can tell you that already the new um, uh, legislation on teleworking uh, introduces the right to disconnect, so it gives the workers a lot of options, safeguarding, the rights and um, since I, as I said I haven't heard what you said, I just read today that artificial intelligence not only changed the way we work and the um, different nature of work that we have to be prepared of, even for our children we cannot even predict what kind of jobs they might um, need to have, like being a youtuber was something that like two years ago nobody knew exactly that it, it could be a job um, and uh, if, if your daughter or your son wanted to be one, You didn't know exactly how to guide them or support them or give them the um, the necessary digital skills so i saw an application that detects the uh, attention of the politicians (laughs) at the parliament uh, during discussions at the plenary so basically it was ranking who was paying more attention and who seemed interested or they were completely focused on their like iphone or taking um, uh, notes or doing something else so we, we see so many things changing that um, I believe we will have a very interesting uh, uh, debate also when uh, we will start working on the artificial intelligence file. Now it's being discussed who will have the competency if it's going to be shared between committees. It also um, uh, makes sense you know, to have a debate like that because it changes everything horizontally. And uh, we have to make sure that we will be able to, um, to understand all these aspects and to be able to see how this transformation will, will happen. Um, So I think these are the main issues. We have the platform workers, we have the right to disconnect which is essential and the employment committee mainly. And now we have the AI coming and in a couple of months we will have also the working program of what's happening in 2022 in terms of AI, if there will be more things that we will have to address with legislation and of course Data Act which is the core, the fuel of the algorithms. Uh, what kind of metrics can be included, what kind of data sets can be shared in the industry. And I think this is really important because the approach now is high risk, uh, low risk applications, but um, we all understand that um, it's very difficult to keep the balance between protecting uh, our quality of life and our data and our rights to privacy uh, vs. protectionism and um, let's say um, also reciprocity with countries that they want to have access to our data but we don't have access to them and uh, of course geographically you can train algorithms even for a specific let's say um, platform provider um, but it depends on the culture also of, of the people that are involved. So you need to train your data with, uh, with different um, uh, geographies and metrics. So it's very important to understand that we, com- we constantly generate data and they have a value that we should be able to control and understand and also um, uh, protect citizens that they don't want to share their part of sensitive data and also balance this with the right to, um, uh, to privacy and freedom of choice. Um, I believe you have mentioned the challenges of uh, the productivity measurement, so using AI systems to measure how somebody could like increase their productivity in work, how they can improve, uh, which immediately uh, alerts us to see that uh, Uh, workers might need to constantly accelerate and try uh, harder and harder um, since uh, 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 the the scoring in the platforms is not forbidden. What we forbid in this AI file, uh, at least now in the beginning, it's the social scoring. So a government cannot exclude you from public services or they cannot score citizens but it is allowed um, to to be used in in the business models that exist, so we have to Mm -hmm. be very careful at what level these tools will be used and how we can avoid
0: exclusion and of course discrimination. Eva, you've covered an absolute plethora of things in, in your statement there. Uh, I have to say as a journalist I'm particularly um, intrigued by the idea that we can measure how attentive our politicians are being when they're sitting in plenary but you raised an issue of, of we haven't discussed which was something I did want to come on to so thank you for that which is the right to disconnect this uh, question of work-life balance because today we're discussing the future of work but work is only one part and we have to look at the other part I think as well Michael, let me ask you what you think about, uh, as Ava was mentioning there, this right to disconnect. We we see a law in France. We were going to hear about it more, as she says, at EU level. Where do you stand on that?
3: Well, first of all, let me me get back to the idea of what does work mean in this pandemic, -pandemic, post-pandemic context. And I think for many workers, especially in the service industries, work is no longer a place to go, but a task to perform. Uh, what does it mean for working time and the right to disconnect? Well, certainly the the boundaries between working life and private life are, are blowing, are becoming much more fluent. And what is that important is to strike the right balance to make sure that people have, indeed, the right to disconnect, but not in a strict, um, you know, legal sense, but in a sense of getting the balance right. And, and there I think it's less about... Um, An EU directive, an EU instrument setting the rules, but much more looking at different industries, different sectors to find solutions via social dialogue, via social partnership. And this is actually happening in in our industry as well in Temporations work, where social partners are able to address it, discuss it, and find solutions. And also, you know, at EU level, cross industry level, uh, between Business Europe, ETUC, there has been. an agreement on, which covers the issues. So indeed, I think the partners are right place to address it.
0: Thank you. Scott, let me bring you in. I saw you nodding along uh, as a lot of what Ava was saying. But let's, let's question this uh, right to disconnect, if, if this is what we consider a new frontier in work.
2: I think that uh, it's emblematic, really, of where things are going. Uh, With the shift to remote work, it means that people are taking much more work home, and the ability to separate work from life becomes harder. I have been raised in the United States. The the boundary there is less distinct than in Europe anyway. But I think it's a crucial issue. And I think we also need to keep in mind that with this uh, shift to work from home, it has different impacts on people based on on, uh, gender and life position. There was some very interesting survey work done by Eurofound that found that uh, people who said that they couldn't manage tasks in the evening after working a full day, well, first, was not surprisingly different for people who work at an office versus people who work from home now. But second, had a hugely different effect on females, and particularly severe on females that had young children at home. So again, I think that trying to get this work-life balance thing right in a world where remote work becomes more prevalent, uh, I think it, it is going to be a key emerging issue that we have to look to. This is a change, uh, largely as a result of the increasing focus on remote work. And I think the, the implications for mental health and for many other social aspects are important.
0: Well, thank you. Well, since Scott has raised this issue, um, I'm going to come now to Mark and Katrina. Talk to me a little bit about gender balance in the future of work, um, and and what we see of are there particular problems for women, um, are there particular other discriminatory issues that we need to think about that are different or new if you like post pandemic. Mark, to you first.
4: So, I, I think there are a few things. I think one is that um, you know we we are uh, working with many of our customers now on the broader. Uh, discussion on uh, um, belonging and the sense of uh, equitable relationships uh, which affects gender, um, sexual preference, um, ethnicity, etc. And I I know you've you've asked me specifically about the the future of women but I think the underlying principles of understanding uh, what's important uh, to to every individual is really key. And getting that understanding needs needs to bring together a number of bits of real data in order to drive the right interventions and take the right actions um, at all stages and part of that is um, looking at multiple sources of information so for example right now we're looking at um, one of our solutions brings together um, the, vo- the vocational position of uh, a particular person along with other aspects like ethnicity and gender so that we can look at intersectional data and do a heat map for example for um, uh um german uh, female german engineers that are working uh under the that are under the age of 24 and what does it mean for them in a particular industry because you know that probably gives us a great deal of insight what it means for that particular cadre that are working in that part of the business that are in a specific vocational group and how they feel and the true sense of how they feel and we're merging that with the data that we get from our sentiment uh, survey that gives us a very strong indication about Uh, the sense of inclusion so I think there's a lot more that we need to do to get underneath the the skin because clearly there's still a a very significant imbalance Um, but it's not just the 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 outcomes are clearly very important but we have to get up the chain of activity much earlier in order to do something really effective we can't just wait for the outcomes and then you know react to those we have to do things at the earliest education level look at the right progression opportunities uh, but also the right encouragement and the right values that are being applied to make those decisions and, and select the right people for for roles and responsibilities etc uh, and the other thing i think is is um, is also eroding uh the way in which opportunities are fulfilled uh within within organizations so another thing that we're looking at is establishing a more open market talent marketplace so that you can base um opportunity that somebody might participate in a program of activity or a new team or a community of interest based on the skills that they want to develop and they would perhaps be people that might well be gender related but are reluctant to put their hand up because it doesn't feel so comfortable to to join a certain group whereas this actually actively encourages the opportunity for those people to join um, and develop their skills and and are reinforced uh, to do that and I think that that's probably the direction that we're we're going. I think w- without specifically talking, um, uh, 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 in answer to your question, um, uh, Jennifer, about the um, uh, the position of of women more broadly, but that that of course prompts the right debates and discussions, which are happening in many organisations now, to how to address long-standing inequality actions that have have permeated the organisation, gone back many years.
0: Well, Mark raises some really great points there. Katrina, where do you see uh, these these questions coming up with younger people?
1: Yeah, I just want to say that there is no place for any form of discrimination in future work. Uh, so this is a um, really important statement to know. And and uh, I worked on an opinion, an adequate minimum wage, and this uh, crucial issue was really discussed from youth and youth organizations in relation to adequate minimum wage. Uh, I wanted to mention also about key values um, youth youth organizations uh, are mentioning in relation to future work. Uh, So these are rights of every person to an income, importance of work-life balance and having a fulfilling job and the ability to contribute to society in ways other than through employment. And here comes what I want to mention also is non-formal education and especially Erasmus Plus and European Solidarity Corp. So where learning peer-to-peer is really important and skills youngsters are acquiring in internships and volunteering are really important and should be recorded in their experience as their first job experience.
0: Eva, I'm sure you're interested in avoiding discrimination in the workplace and I know you've kind of looked at the idea of women in STEM subjects and so on. Give me your perspective on this question.
5: Well of course when everything is transforming it's normal that we expect also to have an increase of uh, inequalities for those who can benefit from a technology and those who will be left behind. So um, in any case, any discrimination or exclusion is something we are trying to make sure that it will be avoided in this you know, translation of our rights online. Uh, but what we uh, first need to do, as I mentioned, is like to understand that it's going to be a social disruption. And um, since we have actually decided that our vision is to have a human centric and trusted AI, we have also to um, make sure that this is going to be our, our compass and um, I have the feeling that when I was talking about like social protection to extend it and, and to cover all the, these new aspects and the new challenges that occur, of course, I mean that this would have to, to go also for um, all the gender issues that they um, might happen. You know that there, there are already AI systems that have failed exactly because constantly they are biased uh, for diff- from different metrics that people since people are biased in any case creating this these algorithms and the data we generate are the ones that train them so we are trying to, to find ways to make sure that it's going to be um, a well-trained ai with high quality of data and uh we will have to open this very interesting discussion on what kind of uh, metrics uh, should we rely on and what should be allowed or not to make sure that there will be uh, no um, uh, AI that would lead into any discrimination and and when I mentioned that there are platforms that they use um, AI to measure the performance, um, or on the pro- the, producti- the productivity the productivity of like workers, we all understand what this could mean. When you have an automated system that says, listen, if uh, this person could actually do much better, but they don't and they fail from the standards and the scoring uh, that they do, uh, this means they are um, automatically, you know, dismissed. Uh, this creates like a, a new world of like challenges that we have to avoid and I think in in Europe that we have this like quality of life to that we want to protect we will manage to not have a controversial artificial intelligence and um, and I, the example I mentioned about politicians is not for anyone to feel that it's the governments that would like do a surveillance for workers it's also for for the politicians that they have to deal with all these. Um, AI systems to understand it and, and decide what kind of new rights should be introduced. Um, and also, Jennifer, I, um, maybe I, I did like a long introductory remark, but I wanted also to include all the files we're working on. And I think everything is connected. It's the cybersecurity, it's like what kind of data we are feeding the algorithms, um, the reskilling and upskilling of people in order to be able to, uh, to respond to this demand. Of, of uh, new
0: jobs and uh, yes and all the files that they are ongoing absolutely you, you I know you have an awful lot on your plate in the Parliament at the moment um, Scott let me come to you on this question of bias mm-hmm. and I want to talk a little bit about if you like the digitalization we talk about digital tools um, often with regard to people using those tools but If we want to talk about getting away from discriminatory practices or getting away from bias, we presumably need all sorts of different people designing them and creating them. Is there some sort of bottleneck that you see that might be overcome in the tech world of work that might make it easier for future generations to feel that they're not just users of tools, but also designers of tools? Mm -hmm.
2: Yes. Oh, that's uh, in some ways a hard question. Certainly there's been a lot of focus on trying to teach more young people how to code, how to actually employ technical skills so as to be, as you say, designers rather than mere users of the tools. And I think it's important, and it, it also links back, as you say, to these questions of algorithmic bias. Part of the reason that we see algorithmic bias is that people who program the algorithms uh, themselves are uh, are biased. Uh, um, I think there was a recent case where uh, people in the Philippines were being used to scan uh, images for one of the large digital platforms, and uh, almost anything that showed uh, two males or two females holding hands, they considered to be obscene. Um, Again, it reflected a cultural bias. Um, You know, but basically, we have biases. We're human beings Uh, somehow trying to get a sufficiently diverse, uh, inclusive workforce into the process of creating all of these automated tools, I think is going to be important, but hard, challenging.
0: Well, thank you, Scott. I've kind of prodded you into setting me up for a round of closing remarks since we are just kind of wrapping up. So Michael, Scott mentioned it, that we're talking about the future of work. And obviously, we have focused very much on digitalization. We've also talked about skills. And Scott has introduced the idea of culture. So in your closing remarks, just rapidly, Tell me where you think the nexus or the balance lies and, and what you predict. Look into your crystal ball.
3: Well, I would say the future of will very much look like the past, because when I said earlier on that, you know, some of the new terms actually don't match, I also feel that some of the solutions being developed in the past can also help to graduate the way forward. We don't have to reinvent everything. We need to adapt, reform, rebuild. That's in our manifesto, we we, we form resilience. And, And I do feel we can only do it together. So as social partners, with governments, with the tech providers, with platform suppliers, building together, building new, not better, or building not back, but indeed, we are in there together. Let's shape it. Let's make it to the benefit of all.
0: Thank you, Michael. Katrina, your closing thoughts. Uh, we've we've covered a lot of ground in the last hour and or hour and a bit.
1: Uh, I started with the quote, and I think I will finish with a quote. Uh, some some talk to you in their free time, and some free their time to talk to you. So, please, uh, dear policymakers, uh, make yourself available for youth and youth organizations because they have huge potential in, in their organizations, and they have. Uh, great researchers and studies uh, on their tables ready for discussion. So please involve youth organizations and civil society organizations to make policies uh, which work for um, people and for our next generation. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Katrina. Well, I think then, of course, I will turn to Eva to get your quick closing remarks. Eva.
5: So, uh, Jennifer and everyone, it was uh, for me, it was a very interesting discussion because As you understand, we are all learning every day of uh, what the possibilities are out there and what are the challenges that we need to face. Um, And I would maybe say that um, it's better to be late a bit in order to see how innovation is changing our lives before we um, try to control it completely um, and, and ensure that we have quality of life also in the digital era. Um, so this is what we're trying to do, so please like reach out uh, because we have ongoing uh, files around everything that has been discussed today and uh, in the end as you all said uh, work-life balance is uh, what we need to achieve but also um, under the standards and uh, that we have uh, the under the common understanding in Europe and countries that we can have a democratic alliance with Uh, because uh, AI cannot be stopped by borders. And uh, I think that we need to be able to understand who with we can um, cooperate and make sure that uh, uh, we will do that in time and uh, we will not be left behind because it it could be late uh, in the end if we don't find who uh, has the same standards with us and proceed in this direction as we have very high risk AI applications, even around um, uh, the teleworking and uh, um, the future of work. So uh, hopefully we will get it right. And um, I hope, Jennifer, we will manage next time to, to have like very positive examples of what we have succeeded. And thank you so right. much for your difficult task to keep it <laughs> under control and to deal with like people not being able to connect in time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no problem, Eva. It's good to talk to you one way or the other. Um, Scott, uh, you're, Scott from the train station, uh, your closing remarks. We, we're, we're seeing a real dedication from people across this panel.
2: <laughs> Indeed, thank you very much for that. Uh, well, uh, actually, I'd like to close drawing on the remark that you said. I, I, I think you're right to say that the focus should be not on building back better but rather on building forward better. It seems to me we are going to see some kind of recovery to a, a new normal, not to the old normal, uh, relative to the world of work. Uh, there will be a recovery. We're going to see continuance of the tendency toward increasingly flexible work, toward uh, a shift away from traditional full-time employment toward non-traditional employment and toward self-employment in various forms, including gig work. Uh, We're going to see certainly uh, an increasing use of remote work or of hybrid arrangements that are part remote and part on-site. And in responding to all of these, uh, we need a response that focuses on human goals and human needs. I think that that's uh, really the strength of our approach here in Europe. This will imply, I think, a focus on more equity at work, on enhanced social protection, not just for traditional employees, but also for non-traditional and self-employed, of which I view gig workers largely as a part. Uh, An increasing focus on training, recognizing that the world of work is changing, that there are new demands coming down the pike, uh, and that it's going to have to be not only for the young but also for all of us. Self-training and training through various mechanisms to respond to a, a, a rapidly evolving world. And I guess last but not least what this implies is a need for flexibility because I don't think any of us know exactly where all of this is going to end up, uh, if it ends up at all. And with that, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful panel. Thank you so
4: much for chairing and organizing it.
0: Thank you, Scott. Um, Mark, Last word goes to you.
4: Thank you, Jennifer. And thanks to all the other panel members. It's been a really vibrant and and fascinating debate. Just a few thoughts, I think. One is we talk about the future um, and we've been living history for the last 18 months in a way that we never envisaged everything from uh, the workspace, uh, the way we're looking at people, both socially and in the work environment has radically changed. Um, And I think uh, that shift has created uh, a a great deal of uh, questions about what more uh, will happen as a post uh, this COVID uh, environment because it won't end. We're really at a new beginning in many respects. There'll be many features and factors that we'll recognize and resonate from the history of work, but I think it will be uh, a new uh, climate, a new horizon for us going forward. Um, And uh, I agree with with everything that uh, uh, all the panelists have said around um, the importance of focus. It's going to be uh, technology and the frameworks around that. It's going to be uh, a much more hopefully empathetic and understanding approach to uh, to people and the working space. And I'd just like to end on one point in support of Katrina, which is the future is really the youth. And they've been very disaffected by what's happened in the last two years. And I really hope that we can invest hugely uh, in what truly is the future, which is uh, the, the young people that are coming through that will shape uh, the world that will have uh, to live in uh, in the next 10 years. Thank you back to you, Jennifer. And thank you for your great stewardship and, uh, uh, and organization today.
0: Well, thank you. And thank you to all the panelists for making my work incredibly enjoyable today because it was a really interesting conversation. I'm really delighted to have heard all of your comments and thoughts. Thank you also to the audience for tuning in. Uh, a couple of questions came in just as we're finishing. But I do think this is a conversation that we're starting. We could have kept talking all day, but it's not over. So please do use the hashtag EA Debates, tag Workday, tag the other panelists, and keep the conversation going online via social media. And stay tuned because we have more live events coming up from you from your active in the future. Thank you for your attention. Have a great day.